know, my, my kids sometimes watch this movie called The Incredibles. And uh, it's this Pixar cartoon. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, the story is basically this. They, it follows the life of a family of superheroes who, uh, after some misconceptions about what the supers are all about, are forced to uh, sort of retreat into the background and hide in plain sight. And so uh, Mr. Incredible, you know, the big barrel-chested, strong-chinned superhero, no longer goes out at night and uh, fights crimes and catches criminals. He commutes to work as an insurance adjuster. And so it's kind of comedic how it begins. And, of course, his wife, Elastigirl, is left at home to uh, take care of the family. And when he gets home, you know, he's struggling in this profound change in vocation. Uh, he's detached, withdrawn into himself, hardly involved in the dis discipling and, I mean, disciplining of his kids. And, uh, you know, Elastigirl's at her wit's end. It's a chaotic environment. And, you know, my kids watch it. And I see myself in some of that. You know, it's a little strange. I'm no superhero. But what the Incredibles show is basically a normal family life. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's the Incredibles or commercials or whatever. There seems to be just a couple of models for marriage in America today. On the one hand, you've got the dad, who's the bumbling idiot. Can't tell the difference between a washing machine and a toaster. Or he's this workaholic who neglects his family. In both cases, the mom, the wife, is, you know, the one who picks up the slack. She's responsible, accountable, wears herself out, of course, though she's romantically isolated and left unfulfilled. It seems like everywhere you look, that is the typical American family. Detached, withdrawn dad, mom at her wit's end, doesn't know what to do. So whether it's the Incredibles or commercials or even maybe your family, you know what I'm talking about. This is the way things are portrayed. But this morning, our passage tells us that there is another way. That the relationships that are sort of crumbling, the ones I've seen in, in the lives of people I love, uh, in counseling situations, talked with couples who are dealing with marriages like this, uh, there is another way. It doesn't have to be like this. In fact, those two dominant models for marriage have to be replaced by the model we see here in Ephesians 5, a model that's fundamentally based on who Jesus is and what he's done in transforming us as people who are once dead but are now made alive, once in the dark, now light in the Lord, once walked foolishly but now walking wisely. He wants us to pursue relationships of sacrificial love and respect as an act of worship for Jesus. So that's what we're going to see this morning, how every Christian and every Christian couple is called to pursue a relationship of sacrificial love and respect as an act of worship for Jesus. And, and before we get out of here, I'm going to challenge you, right, whether you're unmarried or married, married for a little while, married for 40 years, to take a, a good hard look at your marriage, your thoughts about marriage, and realign them to what Paul says marriage is all about and what a home life in Christ can really be. But before we jump in, we've we got to set this in context. We're only three weeks away from finishing the book of Ephesians, and I would not miss the opportunity to remind you of what you already know, that everything in the second half of the, the letter really flows from what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 1. 
no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, but rather walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And of course, over six weeks, we saw what that calling meant, how we're supposed to maintain and promote the unity of the Spirit, we're supposed to pursue personal holiness, leave the life in the dark behind and come out into the light, learn to live wisely and not foolishly. And above all, last week, we saw Paul say to be filled with the Spirit. We talked about those different participles, what it means to be filled with the Spirit, how we'll speak to one another in songs, hymns, spiritual songs, and all the rest. But of course, we come to verse 21 that says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And what Paul says, we're going to see this week and next week in chapters 5, 22 to 6, verse 9, really flows from that one behavioral change to be filled with the Spirit so that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He shows how that submission that you and I owe to each other as Christians, you know what Paul says in Philippians 2, to have the mind of Christ, um, which humbled himself, becoming a servant, to have that towards each other, um, also applies to the relationships in our homes and workplace. So while our, our chapter division in the English Bibles, you know, end at the end of verse 33 and start a new chapter. Uh, in Greek, there are no chapter divisions. And this unit, 522 to 69, is one thing in the book of Ephesians. It's what scholars call a household code because it describes the responsibilities of different members of a Greco-Roman household. So this week we see the behaviors of wives and husbands. Next week we're going to see the behaviors of children and fathers and slaves and masters, that these relationships are fundamental to what it means to live in family and to work in the workplace in the ancient world. And household codes aren't unique to the New Testament, although there are a few in the New Testament. They're actually the, the oldest ones, and ancient philosophers said that Aristotle first created these household codes in order to help the people understand what their responsibilities were. And of course, this makes sense to me, that families ought to think long and hard about what their responsibilities are to one another in the world. I mean, we believe today that families are the foundation of every human society. God created the family, and as such, it's important that we relate to one another in our families in an appropriate way. According to these ancient philosophers, uh, the proper way to relate to each other was almost in a political way way. They attributed to the father of the household, the head of the family, an almost universal authority, like he was the emperor of his own domain or the king of his castle. But you know, Paul's instructions are different. It's the metaphor that dominates here in the household code of Ephesians 5 and 6 is not political. It's not talking about being the king of your castle. Rather, it's fundamentally altered by Christ. Every relationship in the family and workplace has reference to him. And so Paul explains each one of the to each one of the people in a household how their relationship with Christ, who they are as a new creation, having put off the old self, been renewed in their minds and put on the new self, how their relationship with Christ transforms the way they relate to one another in the home. And we can't miss this. This is kind of fundamental to this week and next week. Paul's belief, and my belief, and I hope your belief, 
is that Christian families should look different than non-Christian families. That there is a distinctively Christian way to relate to each other in our households. And that's what Paul sets out to explain. And so he begins with Christian wives. And he tells them they're called to willingly submit to their husbands. I know y'all all got this passage underlined in your Bible because it's like your favorite. You know, I know it's a difficult one, but this is what Paul says, and we're going to understand why. Christian wives are called to willingly submit to their husbands. This is what he says in 522. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything. I hear an amen on that one? No, I'm just kidding. In everything to their husbands. Y'all know I'm, try- I'm buttering you up because it's coming. Y'all just got to wait for it. You know, we bristle at this command for wives to submit or the NASB puts it even, even a little more strongly, to be in subjection to their husbands. I mean, that's not very PC, Paul. But, you know, it would have been an uncontroversial command for Paul's first readers. In, in the ancient world, wives weren't only called to respect or submit themselves to their husband. Um, the Jewish philosophers uh, talked about the need to obey their husbands, and to even serve them. And the call for submission, then in Ephesians 5, is basically consistent with what wives were already doing in ancient Ephesus. Um, this, this word submission is as uncomfortable as in Greek as it is in English. I mean, it's a term of hierarchy that often carries an overtone of authority. Uh, In the New Testament, this verb, uh, submit, is used to describe Jesus' relationship with his earthly parents when after they forgot him in Jerusalem or he hung behind in Jerusalem, they finally found him and they brought him back with them. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter uh, chapter 2 that he remained in subjection to them. Uh, It also describes the attitude Christians are supposed to have to government authorities in Romans 13. Submit yourself to every governing authority. And in James chapter 4, it's the attitude that Christians are supposed to have towards God. James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. And so submission really is this idea where whether we are a citizen or a person created by God and therefore owing Him our obedience, it's we understand that there is a person who possesses an authority over us And our submission is the appropriate response. Jesus didn't disobey his parents. He wasn't rebellious to his parents. He wasn't sarcastic to his parents. He was in submission to his parents. That's the idea behind the submission Paul's talking about. It is that they recognize their husband's authority and respond appropriately. So while a husband... Sorry, y'all know that is even difficult for me to verbalize out loud because I am so enmeshed in a world opposed to God that even our minds still buck against what is clearly here. But while a wife's submission may not have been surprising to the Ephesians, the reason Paul gives for their submission is unique. Um, Instead of being motivated by their cultural norms, 
Right? Paul could have said, hey, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands because you know that's the way the world works. This is a man's world. Um, instead, he didn't say that. He said, instead of being motivated by the cultural norms or the legal expectation that as a wife you owe your husband obedience, Paul calls them to submit as to the Lord. And this as to the Lord is huge. It's the manner of their submission or the way they're going to submit. You see, Paul didn't demand that wives submit to their own husbands. And he didn't give permission to domineering, abusive men to force their wives into submission. Instead, he appealed to the wives directly on the basis of their belief in Jesus. On the basis of who you are in Christ, wives, submit to your own husband. See, the Gentile world expected wives to live in servile fear of their husbands, to turn their face away when they came in the room, to say, yes, my Lord, you know, and all the rest. But Paul wants them to submit as an act of worship to Christ as to the Lord. And so if verse 22 contains the manner, they're going to offer their submission as to the Lord. Verse 23 is just as important because it shows the reason for their willing submission. It goes with the way and now the reason for their submission. He says, because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is its, himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. See, according to Paul, the reason it's right for Christian wives to willingly submit to their husbands is because their husbands are their heads. And that's a really strange way of putting it. Uh, you know, we sometimes talk about a person being the head of their household, or um, a little bit more drastically, the brains of this operation. But um, this metaphor, the, the wife being, the husband being the head of the wife, is kind of confusing. But if you've been with us through Ephesians, you already know everything you need to know to be able to untangle it and understand what Paul's talking about. Um, back in chapter 1, Paul said that God the Father put all things under His feet, that's under Christ's feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body. And of course, in chapter 4, when Paul describes the body in detail and how we're supposed to grow up in Christ, he says this, that the church's growth is directed into Him who is the head, which is Christ. And so, what we've seen as we've studied the book of Ephesians is that God has done something amazing in the church. That He's taken individuals from all sorts of backgrounds, both religiously and culturally and ethnically, and He has made them one in Christ. And this isn't a political unity, although there are political connotations, but it's an organic unity. There's an organism that is birthed. Paul says in um, Ephesians 2 that he has created in his body one new man. And so there's this new living thing that exists, and it is the body of Christ, the church. Each of us are its members, the various parts of the body, and we function together like limb on limb and bone on bone, um, building up the church until we attain to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. And all that growth 
is directed by the head of the body, which is Jesus. We fit together and are connected with Him. See, just as Jesus is the protector of the church, the Savior of the church, the one who supplies the growth to the church, so too Paul says that husbands are the protector of their wives, the leader of their wives, the one who is involved in directing the growth of the family. See, God's design isn't so much that your marriage takes this repressive turn into like Susie Homemaker land. But what God is after is people who take the cultural norms and allow them to be changed, transformed, so that we offer up to God relationships defined by devotion to Christ. Not cultural norms, but devotion to Christ. When the husband is the head of the wife, it, it's about more than who does the dishes or who balances the checkbook. It's about a wife developing a willingness to follow her husband's lead, not because he deserves it or because he always makes the best decisions, but because she recognizes what he is. That according to God's design, just as Christ is the head of the church, so too husbands are the head of the wives. And in a few minutes, I'm going to give you a kind of a concrete example of what this submission to the head looks like. But um, you'll notice that Paul's quickly works his way through instructions to wives, but he sort of takes his time when he gets to us husbands. And so in verses 25 through 33, Paul calls Christian husbands to sacrificially love their wives. So look there with me again. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of His body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, if the Ephesians were sort of culturally conditioned to expect Paul to say, Wives, submit to your husband. His instructions to husbands would have hit them like a freight train out of left field. I mean, these household codes are everywhere in the ancient world, in Greco-Roman philosophers, in Jewish rabbis. We have tons of examples of them that we can compare Ephesians 5 and 6 to. But in not one, none, I mean by that zilch, zero, nada, None of the ancient household codes that we have found ever contain the command that husbands should love their wives. Never. That's because while they might have understood marriage as sort of a natural institution, something that people just do, men and women get together and have families, or political as the family being the basic building block of a Greek society, 
They did not see marriage in terms of Christ. Only Paul did. Only Paul analyzed what it meant to relate to each other in a home in terms of Christ. And when he did, he assumed that husbands would still have authority in their homes. That they'd still be the head of the wife. But this headship and this authority is totally transformed so that over and over and over, all he wants to talk about is love. I mean, he says in Ephesians 5.25, this one makes me sit up straight, hair on the back of my neck stands up. Husbands, love your wives as wives love the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I think every husband has been put on the spot by their wife at some point or another and said, she, she asked, you know, it's an innocent question, totally sweet and wonderful, but why do you love me? Why do you love me? And you're like an armadillo in the headlights, you know? It's like, phew, I have no clue what to say here. You're fumbling around, grasping in your mind. You, you think back to high school poetry and sonnets come to mind. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways, you know? And you try to come up with something before finally you just fumble around and say, hey, there's just, it's hard to put my finger on it. I just love everything about you. You know, we're men. Tell me to hate. Pick up a hammer and go fix the door. Uh, okay, that's a wonderful way to serve my wife. Tell me to love my wife, and I am all of a sudden in over my head. It's like this love stuff, all this emotional thing. I'm not in tune with who I am inside, Paul. You're going to have to help me out. But unfortunately, when Paul identified the responsibilities of Christian men, it was totally defined by love. Can't get around it. It's about love. And it's not just any type of love, like the, hey, I forgot her birthday's tomorrow, I've got to run find something because I love her. It's a love that's defined by the whole course of Jesus' life, by his love for the church. When you think about Jesus, uh, it's hard to imagine any other adjective to, to describe him besides loving. And he told his disciples in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's Jesus. Apparently the Apostle John had been thinking about that, processing it, because in the first letter he wrote, he wrote in John, 1 John 3.16, the other 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. Now you think about Jesus, it'd be harder to come up with a better word to describe him than loving. See, love motivated everything about him, everything he did. His life was an act of love, but most of all, his death was an act of love. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 2, that we ought to walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And now there is a particular application of that general command for husbands. I mean, there ought not to be a better word to describe a Christian husband than loving. Period. That's what, that's what Paul says. I mean, unlike our mumbling, fumbling, grasping for straws to try to describe our love, Jesus' love was totally different. He knew why he loved the church. It wasn't because of our beauty or our worthiness or because he was mesmerized by the worship we could give him. I like this. It was a love irrespective 
of merit. Love to the undeserving. I mean, this love was for a purpose. Jesus saw the facts. He knew who we were. It wasn't like He was surprised when the veil was lifted. He knew what we looked like. We were broken. We were a mess. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were darkness. And yet Paul would say that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Paul says that the purpose that Christ gave Himself for was that He might sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot, I love this, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, Jesus knew who we were, dead, broken, in the dark, and He loved us like that. But He loved us too much to leave us like that. He knew what the end goal was. That He had come to lay down His life so that He could accomplish the renewal that Paul talked about at the end of Ephesians 4, where we'd put off our old self, characterized by deceitful desires. We'd be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We'd put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's why Jesus gave Himself up. He knew what the plan was. He gave Himself up to make us holy. That's what Paul talks about in Titus 3. He said, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You don't miss this. What Paul wants us to understand is that Jesus' love for the church, Jesus' love for you, compelled Him to lay down His life so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could receive the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit who cleanses your mind, who makes you a new creation in Christ, and then empowers you to live a holy life for Jesus. That is the love Paul's talking about when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And that's why that hair on the back of my neck is standing up right now. Me? Love like that? I mean, Paul goes on to say, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of His body. See, Paul returns to this metaphor of the body and the head. And what he wants us to understand is it's not just right for husbands to love their wives like this, but it's natural. It only makes sense. I like what the, the theologian John Calvin, um, kind of a boogeyman in church history, but I, I love him because he always puts a fine point on things. He says, It's obvious that no man ever hated his own body. And I might put my paraphrase in there, but when he gets hungry, he gets some cash out and goes to City Market and eats some sausage. He looks after himself. He does what he needs to do to take care of his body. In the same way, it's natural for a husband to take care of his wife. And then John Calvin, you know, the austere preacher of Geneva, says this, Any man who doesn't love his wife is a monster. 
It's natural. See, the lovelessness that's present in so many marriages is an indication that husbands have failed to realize what's actually happened. Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and he'll cling only to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Apparently, most men believe that marriage is primarily a legal obligation that they've somehow wound up in. They said, yes, I do, to a couple of questions a preacher asked in a moment of infatuation, and now they're stuck with their old lady. They'll do as much as they have to to keep things a little bit peaceful. They're not going to love her. They can't even stand her, you know? But what Paul says, what the Scriptures say over and over and over, that marriage isn't a legal arrangement left up to the county clerk, but it's a spiritual reality that when a man leaves his father and mother, he leaves them and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, body and head. Because of that, love is natural. It only makes sense. To deny love to your wife is to be a monster, a person who mutilates their own flesh. There's no place in the church. See, Paul understands, and I think it's what we need to rediscover as Christians today, is that the relationship of Jesus with the church redefines everything. But most of all, our families. Christian families have to be discernibly different than the world. This whole coming together and being one flesh is beautifully illustrated, I think, by the traditional wedding ceremony. You know, people do things differently now, and most people like to write their own vows. But, you know, traditionally, everything that happens in a wedding ceremony is symbolic. When you think about it, you've been to weddings, and you know how it works. The preacher and the groom enter stage right. The groom enters with his party and stands alone at the stage with the pastor who's standing there dignified and solemn. The wife is nowhere to be found, the bride. She's roaming the halls, doing last-minute preparations on her hair. But they're not together. They're separate, hidden, and apart. But all of a sudden, the organist plays those first notes. The back doors swing open. And there she is. A bride beautifully adorned for her husband without spot or blemish or any such thing. Every hair perfectly in place. There's not an eyelash with a goop of mascara. She's looking good. She is perfect. But of course her dad's there. And he's also looking solemn, teary-eyed. And they slowly make their way from the back of the room to the front where they stand facing the preacher. And then the preacher asks this question. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the father of bride chokes out her mother and I. And what happens next changes everything. Shakes heaven and earth. Radically transforms these two individuals. The dad takes the veil, puts it over his daughter's head, kisses her on the cheek, then takes her hand and puts it in the groom's hand. And they don't let go until they walk out arm in arm as Mr. and Mrs. They enter the room separately, individuals. They leave the room 
as one. That's what marriage is all about. Leaving behind the person you were and becoming this new thing. A family. A household. For Christians, of course, there's special connotations. We say at the very beginning, hey, before God, these witnesses. And we understand that we're not only making a covenant, a legal arrangement with another individual, but we're pledging lifelong faithfulness to God. See, whether you're talking about the willing submission of a wife or the selfless love of a husband, all of it is offered in worship to Christ. That's what makes everything different. He is the one who dictates the terms of our relationships, and we render them to the other person, not because they deserve it, because we owe it to them, but because we have offered ourselves wholly and completely to God. And to do anything less than willingly submit or lovingly sacrifice is disobedience to Jesus. That is what Paul is after. And so as we close, I want to tell you a story that I think puts flesh on what submission and leadership look like in a Christian marriage. And to do that, I want to tell you a story about a theologian you may have never heard of. His name's Wayne Grudem. And uh, he's probably one of the most influential evangelical theologians of the past 25 years. Any pastor who's been to seminary in the past 15 years has probably read uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology textbook. It's pretty much standard in the evangelical world. And for about 20 years, he was a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, uh, which is kind of like if you want to go into academia as an evangelical uh, theologian, you could not do better than Ted's, what we call it. And uh, Grudem's a big deal. But his wife has suffered for many years from intense pain due to fibromyalgia. Living in Chicago, you know, they have crazy cold winters, and her pain is incredibly worse during the winter months. And so in 1998, a few couple friends of theirs invited them to go on a vacation to Mesa, Arizona. And they were there, you know, just for a week or so, but his wife Margaret kind of woke up one morning pain-free for the first time in a long time. And they talked about it then and decided that they'd come back next year, 1999. And so they did. And they came back in two successive summers. And in the year 2000, um, they're on vacation in Arizona. And this is from Grudem's account of how this all went down. He said, one afternoon I said to my wife, Margaret, it would, great, it would be great for us to move here because of how your body reacts to this weather. But there are really no jobs for me here. There's no seminary here, and I'm not trained to do anything else. And so that was that. It'd be nice to move here someday, but there's no jobs. Later, they were flipping through the yellow pages, and they saw an ad for Phoenix Seminary, a little know-nothing, no-name seminary in Arizona. And so Wayne Grudem picks up the phone and calls the academic dean, which I put myself in that guy's shoes, and if you're like Phoenix Seminary and Wayne Grudem calls you, you're like, what is going on here, Lord? But Wayne Grudem says, hey, would you ever have any need for a systematic theologian? And they had a great conversation, and uh, he said, you know, maybe someday we'd have a place for you. 
So the Grudems go back to Chicago and continue praying about the potential of this kind of move. And one day in his quiet time, Wayne Grudem came to Ephesians 5.28. Husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. And he was convicted. And he asked himself, if I loved Margaret as if she was my own body, wouldn't that mean I'd want to move Arizona for her. And so he asked her, Margaret, if I were living with the same kind of pain that you live with, do you think I'd want to move? He said, she didn't even answer. She just laughed. He said, so I was convinced we should move. (laughs) But get this, Margaret wasn't. She believed that his position at Ted's the writing ministry that God had given him, the platform, was doing so much good, not just for their marriage, their life, but really for the church as a whole. She couldn't wrap her mind around leaving that. And so he decided, instead of saying, well, this is what we're doing, I'm the head of this house, my way or the highway, he started praying. Kept praying. A few weeks later, the dean of Phoenix Seminary called him and said, Wayne, I've talked with our trustees, and we'd like to bring you on as the research professor for theology. There'd be no classroom requirements from you. You'd just be free to write. That's a stewardship that God's given you, and we want to support you in that. And so he told Margaret, and immediately her box was checked. He could continue writing. They'd be in Arizona. But then they started asking, okay, God, all these pieces seem to be falling into place. Is this your will? They're praying about it together, wrestling over it, leaving a place they've been for 25 years for a little no-name seminary in Arizona. And one day they were on a walk around their block. And Margaret said to him, You know what? I've decided what I think about this question of going to Phoenix Seminary. I've decided that I'm going to trust you to make the right decision. That, I think, is a beautiful picture of the submission and leadership that we're talking about. Grudem says, the head has ears, and he ought to listen to his wife. And so, as we think about the Grudems, it would be easy to say, well, they are spiritual elite theologians. Uh, How can that exist in my life? And I just want to tell you, it's the same way that it exists in theirs. No human being ever decided to relate to their significant other in that way. It's a work of being filled with the Holy Spirit, being daily renewed in the spirit of their minds to take on the character and lifestyle of Jesus Christ so that they can relate to one another in such a God-honoring way. And if you will make it your aim, to walk in the Spirit. He will transform your relationship so that it looks like what we've seen today. And so I want to challenge you as we come to the end of the sermon to think about these models of marriage, whether it's the Incredibles and Elastigirl, whether it's the commercials we see on TV, or whether it's Christ and the church. Where are you? And if you decide you need to make a change, there are really four steps. True for your marriage, for all sorts of stuff, but especially your marriage. Number one, come to Jesus. 
Because of what Paul says here, that a true marriage is radically reoriented because of Christ, only Christians, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, are able to live this way. So you have to begin there. Come to Jesus. From there, you've got to repent of your dysfunction. You know what I'm talking about? Your dysfunction. Your patterns of reaction to each other. The thing that recurs over and over and over again in your marriage. Repent of it. Name it to God. God, you see that I always do this when my wife says something to me. Help me to be different. Repent of it. Repent and ask for forgiveness from your spouse. You know, lately I see that I've been in a funk and it doesn't matter what you say, I always seem to snap. And I'm sorry for that. That's not right of me. Will you please forgive me? Right? Repent of your dysfunction. And three, commit to pursuing this relationship together. You know, it can feel awkward when you make a change in life. It especially feels awkward when you make a change in your marriage. Because you got these normal ways of being with one another, and when you flip the switch, it can feel fake, inauthentic. But if you can commit to one another, that, hey, we're in this together. Our marriage has to be different. Because Jesus is calling us to willingly submit and sacrificially love. And so I'm going to be figuring this thing out. Do you have my back? Yeah, I got your back. You got my back? I got your back. We're good. We can do this. Take it day by day, one fight at a time, trying to figure this thing out. And finally, ask for help. Uh, Titus 2 contains this wonderful verse that I wasn't able to work into my sermon, but Paul tells Titus to instruct the older women to teach the truth to younger women so that they would learn how to love their husbands. And the truth of it is, is that we all need help. That we have blind spots, and especially so in our marriage. And if you find yourself at a roadblock where you can't seem to make the change you want to change, maybe it's time to ask for help. To find a Christian couple that you know who has the relationship that you want to have and ask them, how did you guys get there? What do you guys do when you have a disagreement? How do you guys handle stuff like this? Ask for help. I'm here for you. I'd love to sit down with you and hear what you're going through and see if I can offer a third party's input. But most of all, commit to each other and to Jesus to work this out in your lives. And I'm sure that day by day, moment by moment, you'll discover this home life in Christ. And you'll love it. Never want to go back. Will y'all pray with me?